You're listening to an audio sermon from Sovereign Grace Church Toronto. For more information, visit sovgracesto.org. Well, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, the sermon text I'll be preaching on is printed in your bulletin, Hebrews chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 9 this Sunday afternoon. Last Sunday marked the beginning of the Advent season. Advent begins on the fourth Sunday before Christmas Eve and ends on Christmas Eve. And uh, it marks the beginning of a season when churches all around the world, across denominations, devote the entire month of December to think about, meditate on, and rejoice in the good news of Christmas, to focus our attention on what theologians call the incarnation, or literally the enfleshment of Christ. That is what Christmas is all about in a word, the incarnation of Christ. It's the celebration of the historical event in which the Son of God became the Son of Man, Theologian J.I. Packer calls the incarnation the supreme mystery of the Christian faith. It is that Jesus of Nazareth was God made man. Today we're going to begin our consideration of this supreme mystery by spending some time thinking about the topic of angels. Now when I was a teenager, I went through a phase where I was really into Christian fiction, I don't know if any of you have gone through a phase like that before, but as a teenager in the kind of late 90s, early 2000s, I was reading these books uh, uh, from the Christian bookstore that were all about kind of lifting the veil between the the seen world and the unseen world. There would be a scene where uh, the author is narrating a conversation between two people, and then there'd be kind of a break in the narrative and then it would switch to what's going on in the unseen spiritual world where angels are in council with one another and then they draw their swords and they charge at demonic uh, forces to protect those who are praying for God's protection. It was uh, really quite a fad at the time and it left quite an impression on me. I remember spending a lot of time just reading these kinds of books and looking out the window and imagining these unseen spiritual beings clashing with swords and shields and fighting or imagining guardian angels standing uh, sentry around me. As time passed, however, and my relationship with God grew, my interest in angels faded. After all, why put my trust in angels when I could put my trust in God? Why spend my time pondering the angelic servants of God when I could spend my time pondering God Almighty himself? So over time, I came to believe that angels were largely irrelevant to my life. And perhaps that's you today. You don't think about angels very much, or perhaps you think too much about angels. You know, you you, you search on Google the, the, the term guardian angel, and all these YouTube videos come up about identifying your guardian angel and naming your guardian angel, and how many guardian angels do you have? It's, it's quite uh, a popular trend. That's not where I'm trending these days. But every time Christmas comes around, I actually find myself inevitably thinking about angels because if we're honest, if we read the Christmas narrative, angels are everywhere. Angels are speaking to Zechariah about the birth of John the Baptist. 
Angels are speaking to Mary about the virgin birth, which we saw in our scripture reading earlier in this service. They're speaking to Joseph about Mary being pregnant and then about the dangers he faced from Herod and then where he should live when he returned from Egypt. They appear to the shepherds in a massive choir, this heavenly host declaring glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And then when you kind of do a search of, of angels uh, in the concordance or on, you, know, you search on Bible Gateway or something, you realize that angels are actually a very prominent part of scripture. I mean, an angel was standing sentry with a flaming sword uh, leading into the Garden of Eden. Angels were going up and down the ladder when Jacob had his dream uh, when he was running away from Esau. Angels were the ones who were destroying the city of Sodom on behalf of God as he executed justice on them. Angels were inscribed in the the Ark of the Covenant and all over the veil that blocked the holy place from the holy of holy place. Uh, You kind of wonder, are we perhaps spending too little attention on angels? How are we to process the whole topic of angels? How are we to think about them? especially in light of their prominence in the Christmas narrative. How much significance should we attribute to them? We need a guide. We need someone to guide us into the right thinking on this topic. And thankfully, God has given us one in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, this is our guide to thinking properly about angels, For those who don't know about the book of Hebrews, this was originally a letter written to Jewish Christians in the style of a sermon. We don't know exactly who wrote this uh, book of the Bible. There have been theories about it being the Apostle Paul or one of his associates. Uh, In the end, our answer is inconclusive. We don't know exactly who wrote it. But what we do know is that the, the writer wrote with a strong pastoral heart and he wrote with apostolic authority. That's how it made it into the scriptures. The writer himself calls this letter in chapter 13 a word of exhortation. That's a fancy word of saying, this is a sermon I'm preaching to you. And as you look through Hebrews and you break it down, you actually see that it's styled like a sermon. Chapter one, for example, is an exposition where he brings in all these Old Testament scriptures and he explains them. And then chapter two, which we're going to look at today, is his application. He says, therefore, in light of all that we've thought about, all that we've studied in the Old Testament, this is what we must do. This is a sermon. And the purpose of this sermon is to help suffering Christians persevere. I wonder if you're suffering today for whatever reason, because Christmas season is a hard time for you because you have missing family members or you have difficult memories from past Christmases. Well, for the early uh, first century Jewish Christians, life was hard for them because they were being persecuted. And whenever they were, there's persecution, there's a temptation to give it all up. If you just give up your faith, then all this pain will go away. I mean, in Hebrews chapter 10, the, the author of Hebrews talks about how they were being put into jail or they were visiting their brothers and sisters who were put in jail and he commends them for joyfully accepting the plundering of their property. They were, they were being thrown into jail. They were being um, uh, persecuted by the culture. Even their property was being stolen from them. The author of Hebrews doesn't want them to give up. He wants them to persevere. And he does that 
by pointing them again and again to one thing, to one truth, to one person. He points them again and again to Jesus. He just says, look, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, the, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Look to Jesus, the one who is greater than Moses. Look to Jesus, our great high priest who has passed through the heavens and offered himself as a sacrifice for your sins. Look to Jesus, a priest in the order of Melchizedek, who had no beginning of days nor end of life, but continues a priest forever. Look to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And here in our text today, the author says, look to Jesus, who did what angels could never have done. Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, did what angels could never have done by taking on flesh and living as a man so that he could act on our behalf. Stephen Wellam says in his definitive Christology, he says, the point of his incarnation was representation. The point of his incarnation was representation. Do you want to know why Christmas exists? It's so that Jesus could act as our representative. He lived as our representative. He died as our representative. He ascended as our representative. And here in chapter 2, we're going to see what Jesus accomplished as our representative, secured a glorious future for all who trust in him. It was about the full restoration of redeemed humanity to the glory of God. So let's read our text today, Hebrews chapter two, verses one to nine. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape If we neglect such a great salvation, it was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him. He left nothing outside his control. At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him. Who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The title of this sermon is What Angels Could Never Have Done. What Angels Could Never Have Done. My aim today is to show you that Christmas gives us hope for the full restoration of humanity. Christmas gives us hope for the full restoration of humanity. Humanity. We're going to break up our text today into two points. First, the Son's superior message, and second, the Son's superior mission. The superior message and the superior mission. First point, the Son's superior message. If you look through the book of Hebrews, you'll see that there are 12 references to angels 
across this letter. And 10 of them are in the first two chapters. And that's because the point of these first two chapters is to show us that as great as angels may be, Jesus is that much better. Chapter one, verse four said, as Timon so wonderfully preached to us two weeks ago, Jesus has become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus is superior to angels. They do not compare to him. And then the, the, the writer then spends the rest of chapter one explaining in the varied ways that Jesus is superior to angels. Verse five, Jesus is superior because he is called the very son of God. He is superior to them in name. He is superior to angels because he is seated on God's throne as angels are sent out to do God's will. They are serving while Jesus is seated. He is superior to angels in what he has done, having created the heavens and the earth, including angels, without ever changing within himself. And he is superior to angels in promises, having received from the Father the promise that he will put all of his enemies as a footstool for his feet. Jesus is utterly unique. He is utterly unique, not only on earth, but in heaven. He does God's work as God's own son, speaking with God's own authority. And no angel can claim that honor. This honor is for Christ and for Christ alone. Having explained all this in chapter one, this ancient pastor now moves from exposition to exhortation in chapter two. In verse one of chapter two, so the beginning of our sermon text today, he says, therefore, in light of all that I've said in chapter one, in in light of all that the Old Testament has revealed to us about who angels are and who Christ is and how superior he is to him, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. That's the application. We must pay much closer attention to something that we have heard. What is he referring to? What is he talking about? What are we to pay much closer attention to? Well, he's referring to the wisdom and the power of the gospel. He's referring to the gospel, the saving message that Christ came into the world to save sinners. We know that because in verse three, he calls this message the message of such a great salvation. Christians are to pay much closer attention to the gospel and its implications of what we believe and how we live. Because if we don't, we're going to drift away from it. There's an exhortation and then there's a warning. We must do this because if we don't do it, this is gonna happen. We are going to drift I wonder, have you ever assumed that if you are not doing anything spiritually, you're not spending time in the word or you're not going to church faithfully, that your spiritual life is gonna be okay? You, you may acknowledge that you may not be growing spiritually, but at least you're not declining spiritually. Well, verse one tells us that this is a dangerous assumption because it is just not true. Doing nothing actually does something. It leads to spiritual drift. This word here, drift, is borrowing on nautical terms. It's a sailing metaphor. If you're sailing in a boat, heading to a specific destination, all you need to do is do nothing for you to lose your way, to drift off course. Sit back, relax, and watch as you make a shipwreck of your faith. 
It doesn't matter if you're doing a bunch of good things. You know, you're doing good works. Or perhaps you're even going to a church regularly. It doesn't matter if you're not doing a bunch of bad things. You're not lying. You're you're cheating. You're not stealing. If you fail to do this one thing, the author of Hebrews is telling us, if you fail to pay close attention to the gospel of God's great salvation, it's only a matter of time before you drift away. And you're just as far away from God as those who sinned against him deliberately, as those who adopted false doctrine. All it takes is to do nothing. It's so easy to get this wrong, to assume that we're okay. But we get this wrong not only on a personal level, but on an institutional level. You know, when a church senses that it's drifting, for whatever reason, you know, numbers are down, giving is down, you know, people aren't excited about a church. You know, when a church goes through something like that, it can think, well, what we were doing doesn't work. The, the old message of the gospel, it's irrelevant. It's not speaking to our culture. We need to do something new. We need a new message. We need a new message about global development or social justice, or we need new branding. You know, we need better signs, and we need broader advertisement. That's not what a drifting church needs. Verse 1 tells us what a drifting church needs. It needs to pay much closer attention to what they have heard. They need to return to the ancient message of the gospel and look at it, and look at it again, and look at it again, and pay much closer scrutiny and give much fuller and purer submission to the gospel. Only the gospel has the power to reconcile us to God and to keep us there to reform us in his image so that we do not drift away. That is one reason why we are to pay closer attention to the gospel. But the author gives us another reason in verses two to four. So in verse two, he mentions a message declared by angels that proved to be reliable. Now, usually when the New Testament references angels, you're probably left scratching your head. You know, you gotta do this because of the angels. Like, what? Well, what, is, what does that mean? Um, and it's similar here. We read this in like message declared by angels. What, what, is, what is the author of Hebrews talking about? Well, if we dig a little deeper, it becomes apparent that what he's talking about is the law of Moses. He's talking about the rules that bound God's Old Testament people, Israel, summarized in the Ten Commandments. We see a hint of that in the text when he says that every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. That was a feature of the law of Moses. Um, If you kept the law, you were blessed. If you transgressed it, you were cursed. But that, that kind of still raises the question, why would the author describe the Mosaic law as a message declared by angels? Because if you read the Exodus account of how God gave the law of Moses to Israel, you'll know that God himself spoke in thunder and lightning on Mount Sinai, surrounded by smoke and fire, and he delivered the word of God to the people of God. But if you look at what Moses himself, who was on that mountain, who was speaking to God face to face, receiving God's word, when you read what Moses said himself about this encounter with God, he makes it clear that there was much more going on behind the scenes. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, this is Moses writing. He says, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the 10,000s of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. 
This last phrase there, flaming fire at his right hand, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures and uh, is referred to often to help us understand what Old Testament Hebrew words meant, actually translates this last phrase as, at his right hand were angels with him. Angels. Angels were there with God at Sinai. That's what Moses observed. That was part of his experience talking to God. There were angels there serving in some mysterious intermediary way. This actually appears to have been a well-established Jewish tradition in the New Testament era. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, the apostle Paul says, why then the law? Okay, he's talking about the Mosaic law there, the law of Moses. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels. It was put in place through angels. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen, as he's delivering his sermon, defending himself, and more importantly, defending the Christian faith before he would suffer as the first martyr of the Christian faith, says this in in chapter 7, verse 38. This is the one, Moses, who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our father. Similarly, verse 53. You who received the law is delivered by angels and did not keep it. So when the author of Hebrews speaks about the law of Moses as being a message declared by angels, he's speaking from a well-established Jewish tradition. The law was declared by angels and proved to be reliable when God punished every transgression or disobedience. Now, now here's his point. Okay, That's just context. Here's his point. If neglecting the message of angels led to punishment, how much more will neglecting the message of his son? If neglecting the message of angels led to punishment, how much more will neglecting the message of the son? That's what happens when we are neglecting the gospel. Verse two told us that the law was declared by angels. But verse three tells us that the gospel was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested by those who heard, that is the apostles, God bore witness to it through signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Spirit, but those were just witnesses. The originator of this message, of the gospel message, was Jesus Christ himself. And so we see that Christmas reminds us that Jesus came into the world as a man to deliver this message of salvation to us personally. It was his personal invitation to us to know him and to be forgiven by him and to be satisfied in him. But if we neglect this message, we shall not escape God's judgment. Hebrews 10 says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. Is that you today? Are you sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth? Are you ignoring the gospel, living as if Christ had never died for your sins and turning a blind eye to your great salvation? Perhaps you're going to church, going to church regularly, but the rest of the week, your faith is mostly irrelevant. You're living the same way as the rest of the world. Well, if that's you, then Hebrews is telling you, then you need to take care. Because when the day of judgment comes, you will have no basis to expect mercy. You will only have a fearful expectation of judgment. 
The Son has spoken. And his message is infinitely superior and deserving of our attention than the message of angels. This is the fear and the wonder that we so often miss when we celebrate Christmas. We don't typically think about angels thundering from heaven. We think about angels as gingerbread cookies that we can eat. We're so taken by the sentimentality of Christmas that we've lost the weight of its significance. You know, we we saw two weeks ago in chapter one, verses one to two, you know, long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And we think, oh, isn't that nice? Isn't it nice that God sent his own son? I mean, how much, he loves us so much. And we're meant to feel that. But we're also meant to feel a weightiness because the son has spoken. Christmas was God's way of saying, this is your last chance. I've spoken to you by my prophets and you did not listen. I've spoken to you by angels and you did not listen. So if I now send my son to speak to you and you still do not listen, then all creation will testify with me that your judgment is well-deserved. And so, what are you doing to pay much closer attention to the words of the son? to the gospel of God's great salvation. If you're here today and you are not a Christian, the question for you is, have you ever paid attention to it? Do you know that the message of Christmas is that God himself has spoken through Jesus Christ to offer you the way of salvation, the only way? It's not just one way among many, it is the only way, and if you neglect this way, you will be judged You may live the way that you want to live now, but God will call you into account in the life to come. And the question that will determine your eternal destiny, whether in heaven or in hell, is not how many good things did you do? It'll be what did you believe about Jesus? Believe in him and you will be saved. Reject him and you will be judged. And if you're a Christian, you're thinking, well, of course I pay attention to the gospel because I accepted Jesus into my heart when I was X number of years old. Well, you need to recognize that this verse is addressed to you. It's written to Christians. You must pay much closer attention to what you have already heard lest you drift away from it. These verses warn us that we can't sit back and relax with our golden ticket to heaven in hand. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We do that by how we spend our time. We do that by the kinds of churches we attend. You know, not everyone who is here is going to be here in a couple years. People move, they get married, they they get a new job, whatever. My, My hope is that you would pick a church that would have this at its heartbeat, that every Sunday when we meet, We're paying much closer attention to what we have heard. The gospel is at the center, not only of the beginning of the Christian life, but its middle and its end. Or as our friend C.J. Mahaney says, it's not just the ABCs, it's the A to Z 
of Christianity. We do this, we pay much closer attention to the gospel by the choices we make every day about what is going to fill our minds through our ears and through our eyes. You know, Jesus said the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are constantly taking in darkness in social media or in entertainment or in the various streaming services out there, it should come as no surprise that your heart will become darkened as well. But if your eyes are taking in the light of God's truth, revealed in Christ crucified, your whole body will be flooded with the transforming power of God's light and you will be changed. And you will, you will not drift away. You will stay at the side of your Savior. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Well, here's the question. I don't know if you're asking this, but we should ask this question. Why would Jesus save sinful humanity when he had untold scores of angels who had never sinned there to worship him. Why would he bother with that? Why didn't he just wipe us out and say, all right, I'm going to receive glory from the worship of angels. Why would he save pitiful little creatures like us? Well, the answer, as we shall see, is that God has purposes for humanity that he does not have for angels. And that leads to our second point the son's superior mission. Verse five explains, it gives us the answer to this question. It says, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Note first the phrase, the world to come. There is a world to come that is different in nature than the world that we currently inhabit, the experience that we currently live The world to come is a glorious new reality in which all sin and sorrow are but a distant memory. And who is God going to set over that new creation? It's not angels. It's redeemed men and redeemed women. That's the writer's point in verses six to eight. He quotes Psalm eight, which is King David's reflection on the amazing reality that God would care about human beings in the first place. It's one of the most well-known, celebrated, loved psalms in the, in the, in the, in the psalms. <laughs> uh, o Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. You have set your glory above the heavens. In the mouths of babes and infants, you have ordained strength because of your foes. And when I consider the heavens, the work of your hands, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. The heart of the psalm is quoted there in verses six to eight. And the writer of Hebrews cites these verses to show us that it is human beings whom God has entrusted dominion over all the earth, not angels. Indeed, angels are included in our dominion. Have you thought about that? I mean, in verse eight, he's explaining, he's expositing the text. He says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. And that includes everything in the created 
order, including angels. I wonder if that's what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians when he says, do you not know that we are to judge angels? The point here is that the God who stretched out the heavens and who set the starry hosts in their place has always had a special purpose for humanity. He who made us for a little while lower than the angels, he has crowned with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under our feet. That was our original purpose. You remember what the Lord said in Genesis chapter one to Adam and Eve? The purpose of their creation, the purpose of their lives, it was to have dominion. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God was entrusting the care of creation to human beings. Exercising dominion is what it means to be human. We exercise dominion when we put flavors together to make a delicious meal. We exercise dominion when we find innovative ways to farm and care for the land. We exercise dominion when we turn trees into beautiful furniture. We exercise dominion when we harness the forces of nature to create energy. We exercise dominion when we care for animals in such a way that they flourish. All of that is part of being human. All of that is part of giving glory to God. You know, friends, we are meant to live as benevolent and wise kings and queens of creation so that we would give glory to God as his image bearers. But that is not what we see. Sin has made a mess of it all. When humanity sinned, two things happened. Our nature was corrupted and creation was corrupted. We, our, our, our nature was so corrupted that we don't rule creation as benevolent servants, but as selfish dictators. We abuse rather than steward creation. And creation itself was corrupted. Became impossible for us to rule. That's what verse eight is about. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, that is to humanity. Creation doesn't always bow to us. In fact, we're often the ones bowing to creation. Reminded of this when an ice storm forces us to cancel our Sunday service. We're reminded of this when we get a form of untreatable cancer. We're reminded of this when a tornado tears through a neighborhood and we can do nothing but run. We're reminded of this when our bodies get old and weak or when a plane crashes because of strong winds or we get food poisoning because the food we're eating is tainted. I'm reminded of this every time I step outside in the morning, I see that my green bin has been ravaged again by a raccoon. I can do nothing about it. I have no power over that raccoon. You know, two weeks ago when I got home from prayer meeting, I caught that raccoon in the act. And I stared it in the face. And that's all I did. Because I couldn't do anything else. And that raccoon, that fat raccoon, that has gorged itself on green bins all around the Oak Ridges neighborhood, went and continued to do its thing, not under my subjection. We do not yet see everything in subjection to us. But do you know what we do see? We see Jesus. Verse nine, we see him. We see him. 
who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. And the writer of Hebrews is doing something remarkable here. He's showing us that this psalm, which is about the glory of man, is ultimately about Jesus, the man who emptied himself of his glory. We see that in verse 9, where the language of Psalm 8, of being made lower than the angels, and being crowned with glory and honor, is applied to Jesus, to Jesus alone, not to mankind, but to the man, Jesus Christ. Now what this means is that Christ fulfilled Psalm 8 on our behalf. He fulfilled God's glorious vision for humanity as our substitute. The one who is superior to angels was made lower than the angels when he took on human nature. The one who is worshipped by angels and sits on God's throne made himself a lowly man so that he could be our representative and subject everything under his feet on our behalf. You know, the miracles that Jesus did, they were not random. They were intentionally chosen. Why did Jesus calm the storm on the Sea of Galilee? To show that the waves and the winds are under his feet. Why did he feed the 5,000 with two loaves, or what is it, five loaves and two fish? To show that he is not bound by the limits of finite creation. Why did he heal people Why did he raise people from the dead? To show that everything, even death, is subject to him. God has put everything in subjection to his son and left nothing outside his control. Jesus has done as a man what no other man could do. He has perfectly executed the vision of Psalm 8 by ruling over creation with perfect power and wisdom so that nothing is outside of his control. And by doing so, he secured the way, listen, he secured the way for all who trust in him to one day exercise the same benevolent, limitless dominion over all the earth. Stephen Wellham puts it this way, the rule promised to humanity has been taken up by the man Christ Jesus. This man is restoring a people to bear the image of God in truth making them truly human again. That is, that is wonderful. Christ not only came to die for our sins, but to make it possible for us to live as full men and women bearing the image of God, exercising dominion over all creation. But as long as we are subject to creation, rather than creation being subject to us, we are, in a sense, not acting fully human. We are falling short of God's vision for us. But Christ has come to restore us to that glorious vision, and he did that by living as our representative. Now, this is where we might expect our text to end. We might expect it to say, Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because of the victory of his life. But it actually says the opposite. Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The Father crowns the Son with glory and honor because he suffered and died in absolute humility. This is how God has always revealed himself to operate. He exalts those who are humble. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. He dwells with the humble and the contrite in heart and who tremble at his word. Nobody humbled themselves like Jesus, and therefore nobody was exalted like Jesus. Mark Jones writes, no one has ever descended so low because no one has ever come from so high. It was Christ's condescension that led to his ascension. It was Christ's humiliation that led to his exaltation. It was Christ making himself nothing that made him everything. As the Father gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that, my friends, is why we have hope. We have hope because Jesus died for us and we have hope because Jesus lived for us. Jesus has tasted our death so that we could have life everlasting. We don't deserve to live the life of Psalm 8. Our sins have disqualified us from living as the vice regents of God over the earth. But Christ has restored that hope by dying on the cross for our sins so that all who trust in him can look forward to that day when all things are put under subjection to us. Angels could never have done this. An angel could never have fulfilled humanity's mandate in Psalm 8 because we needed a human being to represent humanity. We needed a man to represent mankind. An angel could never have done that. And even if an angel could have somehow taken on both an angelic nature and a human nature, it wouldn't have been strong enough to bear the sins of the world. Our Savior needed to be fully God and fully man. And that is what God has provided to us in Christ. And so as we close, the question for us is are we paying attention to this great salvation? If you are, then you must pay much closer attention to what you have heard, lest you drift away from it. There is so much about the gospel that we ignore or miss or don't think about. I mean, who spent time this week thinking about how the gospel restores humanity to its God-glorified position as rulers of creation? I mean, I did, but that's just because I'm studying the text. But if I wasn't, I mean, that would be pretty low down the priority list in terms of what I'm thinking about. But even, if when, even when you do turn your attention to the gospel, my guess is that we actually don't spend much time applying the truth to change the way that we live. And that is the whole point. It's the application. Truth is meant to be enjoyed, yes, but truth is meant to be applied. You know, the Scottish pastor, William Still, he said that receiving the truth without applying it to your life is like playing with your food without eating it. You can play with food. Perhaps you can even chew it. But if you don't swallow it, it's not going to do you any good. You swallow the food by applying the truth to change the way that you live. So how do we eat this food? How do we eat the food that we have chewed on this afternoon? How do we apply this exhortation to pay much closer attention to this rich, powerful, encouraging, hope-giving gospel truth that Christ has restored us to our true purpose? Well, it begins with how we use our time. 
That's where I, that's where, that's where I want to meditate a little bit. It begins with how we use our time. What we believe about what it means to be human will change the way that we live. And how, how we live, if we change the way that we live, it's going to change the way that we use our time because our time reflects our lives. And one of the great tragedies of our day, and I say this as a recovering addict, is our obsession with entertainment. Our obsession with entertainment. You think about Psalm 8's vision of humanity. God has given us dominion over the works of his hands and put all things under our feet. And how do we fulfill this vision? By gluing our eyes to our screens like zombies. We don't think about stewarding time. We think about killing time. We don't think about producing. We think about consuming. And that's not what God created us for. He didn't create us to passively receive the message of a corrupted world. He created us to actively work at reforming the world for the glory of God. And that doesn't just mean, when I talk about reforming the world, it doesn't just mean sustainable farming or reducing greenhouse gases or stopping the rainforest from being cut down. After all, all, our, our, our children are part of creation too. If you're a parent, you're called to steward your children. If you have elderly parents, you are called to to care for creation by caring for their needs. We are called to serve the homeless poor. We are called to welcome the new immigrant. We are called to reach out to the unsaved soul. God has called us to care for all creation, but especially the crown of his creation, human beings. And the best that we can do is to share the testimony of the gospel through our words and through our works. Now, not all of it is going to work. In fact, a lot of our efforts are going to be futile. They're going to end in frustration because we do not yet see everything in subjection to us. The ground is cursed. It's cursed by our sin. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. We must use our time the best we can to do God's work for God's glory. Anything less is less than human and as we do so, let us, let us look to Jesus. We may not see everything in subjection to us, but we see him crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death. Let us look to him as the perfect example of what a human life is meant to look like in his compassion for the lost, in his mercy for sinners, in his devotion to prayer, in his zeal for God's household, in his commitment to the scriptures, in his love for God and neighbor. Christmas reminds us to spend less time looking at our screens and more time looking at Jesus, the one who is fully God and fully man, that we might follow his example. We may not see everything in subjection to us, but we see him. And it is in seeing him that we become like him. Let's pray. Father, we are staggered by this vision of what you have created us to be and to do. And uh, we acknowledge that in the busyness of life and in the sinfulness of our nature that pulls us down to the earth, 
down to passing pleasantries and pleasures and not to eternal, transcendent, everlasting things, we confess that we have failed to live out this vision. But your message to us, Father, and we rejoice in this, is that Christ has fulfilled this vision for us. And so help us, Father, to pay much closer attention to him and to what he has done, that we would not drift, we would stay close to your side, where there are pleasures forevermore. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.